Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the Book of Acts, and here, Peter Lightheart, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts will be discussing the end of Acts 15 with the Jerusalem Council and their decrees, and the first 15 verses of chapter 16, which cover Timothy joining Paul and Silas, and the Macedonian call. We are currently in the middle of a video series going through the Book of Revelation with Peter Lightheart, so we invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is linked there in the show notes. You can enjoy that series along with our previous series on liturgy and work, reading the Bible, and more. With that, we really hope that you enjoy this discussion, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts discussing Acts 15 and 16. Welcome to the Theopus Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John and Alistair Roberts. Uh, Jeff Myers, who is usually with us as a conversation partner, is on a family vacation. So Jeff will rejoin us in a couple of episodes after his vacation comes to an end. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background, making sure that everything gets recorded and uh, he edits what we've done, takes out the awkward pauses, smooths out all the, uh, all the audio so that uh, you can listen to it comfortably. We are in the middle of a series of studies in the book of Acts. In terms of chapters, we pass the halfway point of the book of Acts uh, and are in the midst of Paul's missionary journeys and the stories of Paul's ministry and uh, eventually into his trials and his eventual his eventual arrival in Rome. We had been discussing in the last episode, discussing chapter 15 of Acts, uh, which is uh, the apostles' um, response to the controversy that breaks out concerning circumcision. Since the gospel has been spreading to Gentiles, the question arises whether the Gentiles have to be circumcised and whether they have to observe all the law of Moses, uh, including all the purity laws. Uh, And uh, that creates dispute within the church because some of the believers are saying that uh, Gentiles should be circumcised and should be required to observe the Mosaic mosaic requirements. Uh, And that's resolved by the Council of Jerusalem that we looked at last time. Uh, the apostles and elders gather together. Uh, Peter gives testimony to uh, the Spirit falling on Cornelius and how the Spirit is showing that the Lord accepts Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas get to share their experiences ministering among Gentiles in their first missionary journey. And then James speaks and gives a scriptural foundation for the uh, acceptance of Gentiles uh, without circumcision by talking about the um, rebuilding of the Tabernacle of David. We had begun to discuss the requirements that are laid down, and uh, we felt like we wanted to go back and uh, revisit those, see if there was any uh, any further discussion to be had concerning those requirements. Uh, there are, uh, as uh, chapter 15, verse 20 indicates, there are certain requirements that are imposed on Gentiles. They abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, from things strangled, and from blood. And uh, part of the question is where those requirements come from, why those particular ones. Uh, another question has to do with the permanence of those um, of those requirements or restrictions on Gentile believers. 
And then uh, I think the leading question that we didn't get to answer was blood pudding, the big blood pudding question, uh, whether uh, blood pudding is a legitimate, what is blood pudding to begin with? And then whether it's, uh, it's okay for Christians to eat it. I think you should take that one. I'm trying to recall what's in blood pudding. I think there's oats and pig's blood and um, various other assorted ingredients that you probably don't want to know what's in it um, beyond that. But it's yeah. a delicacy for a full English breakfast. It's uh, um, typically eaten as part of that. And often it's eaten more in Scotland, I think. So um, as part of traditional English fare, not something that I've ever found particularly appealing, um, people might wonder whether it's allowed. I don't think it's... Ex- it's also found at various places on the continent, so... Um, it's not exclusive, yeah. right? And do you know? Do you know the the background? What uh, what if any reflection goes into that? I think it, it's striking to me that it's specifically pig's blood. I mean, I'm assuming that's because they're making pork sausage, so yeah. they're just using they're using the blood along with everything else. But that that feels like something more than just using all your materials. That sounds like a statement. You know, like like having ham at <laughs> Christmas. Like suddenly the pork fast is over. After many centuries of a pork fast, we can eat bacon and ham. Um, is there anything like that behind the blood pudding that it's a somehow a declaration of liberty uh, as Christians? Is there an, an anti-Jewish bias to it in any way, historically? I think it might say more about Northern European fare than um, anything um, that's a theological statement. I think it's more generally just using every single part of the animal. Hmm. Yeah, so it's a it's a pragmatic there's a yeah. pragmatic thing in the background. So we we had discussed I don't remember where we came out on the question, but then we had discussed the idea that some of these that these four requirements are taken from Leviticus. There are uh, several requirements in Leviticus 17 and 18 that are imposed on not just Jews who are in the land, but also on Gentile sojourners who are in the land. And it's been suggested that these four restrictions on Gentiles are taken from those chapters of Leviticus, and they they match more or less. That would mean fornication would include all the degrees of consanguinity, uh, incest laws that are found in Leviticus eighteen. Uh, but Leviticus seventeen talks about um, uh, blood, not consuming blood, strangulation. It's implied that uh, strangulation meat that comes from an animal that's been strangled would be prohibited because the blood has not been drained. Uh, idolatry is an issue that comes up in those chapters. And in each case, you have a specific uh, reference to um, strangers also having to observe these commandments. Thoughts about that? Is that is that a plausible way to uh, explain or justify these restrictions? The blood restriction is also part of the Noahide um, commandments, that you don't eat the flesh with the blood. Um, so even before Leviticus, it seems to be a general expectation the question I have is whether that is something that belongs to an age where these particular sorts of symbols associated with the whole routine of sacrifice have a particular force. And once we move into the age of the incarnation, whether those things are going to be retained in the long term, since we're not in an age of sacrifice anymore blood doesn't have the same sort of symbolic import that it had in those times. Um, 
So my question is whether that is part of a natural symbolism that is retained or whether it is something that passes away with a sacrificial order more generally, not just among Israel, but also among the Gentiles. Right. And that would fit with the Noahic connection because that's uh, that restriction on uh, blood eating is given in connection with a sacrificial and actually an innovation in the sacrificial order. Noah offering this, the first ascension offering that we have in the Bible. So you could, you could fit the Noahic restriction into that same context as you're saying. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's not easy to see why these particular um, uh, issues have been chosen out. Is it? I did what I normally um, do a couple of weeks ago after our podcast, which was um, I I couldn't think what was going on. And so I, I asked my housemate, and he came up with the following um, suggestion. You know, he, he said that, in his view at least, the Mosaic law is, is not binding on believers now in any way. It was growing old in the day when the letters to the Hebrews was written. And in my view at least, it, it has uh, gone now. It is, is now obsolete. But there might still be certain reasons to do things which are consistent um, with the mosaic law and these could be an example of um sort of one of each motivation so i mean it may be for instance that um the believers are told to steer clear of food sacrifice to idols um for conscience sake um you know for the sake of of winning and and being able to uh live in a jewish community um abstaining from blood or things which are strangled seem to go together and that could be um in answer to the noahic covenant and then sexual immorality could be in answer just to standard new covenant teaching um or or even just a sort of general principles of morality so um i i guess that could be a way of of seeing the connection um between the three things Mm. yeah uh the the concern for uh, not giving offense to Jews is clear in verse 21. Moses, from ancient generations in every city, is those who preach him, since he's read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And that's given as a kind of justification for these restrictions. So you, you conform to this degree to the law because it seems that the implication is that these uh, practices would be particularly offensive to Jews. The, uh, then, and I think there's some maybe some support for that angle on things when we get in the beginning of chapter 16. Uh, I think it's it's really it's really interesting that you have the Council of Jerusalem that's concerned with circumcision of Gentiles, and immediately after that, Paul uh, goes to Lystra. Timothy is there, and Timothy is of mixed race ancestry. His mother is Jewish, his father is a Greek, and Paul circumcises him uh, before he takes him off on his missionary journey. So. Uh, and I think structurally, there's a. I think there's a good reason to think that that's actually the conclusion to this segment of Acts. You have the issue of circumcision raised at the beginning of chapter 15. Again, at the beginning of chapter 16, you have a dissension among the brothers. Uh, in chapter 15, you have a dissension of Paul and Barnabas at the end of chapter 15, and then the uh, the uh, Council of Jerusalem and its decrees are set in the middle of that. But it does seem like there's a comment going on, and the specific reason that appears to be given here is that he's circumcising Timothy because of the Jews who are in those parts who know that his father's Greek. And uh, so in order to, in order to accommodate his ministry and his work to the Jews and to sensitive Jewish 
consciences, Paul is willing to circumcise Timothy. That would suggest a uh, the, the uh, conscience issue that you highlighted earlier, uh, James, uh, and the, the the worries about uh, the offense to Jews is one of the one of the key issues that's going on here. In which case, it would be something done to win Jews rather than for the sake of keeping the Mosaic law. I guess is is that right? Yes, that's that's the suggestion that, that there's a you know uh, Paul becomes a Jew in order to win the Jews. He's willing to make Timothy fully Jewish in order to win the Jews. Be interested to hear your thoughts on verse twenty four of um, chapter fifteen where there are people who are going out who are claiming to be um, from the church in Jerusalem, acting under the auspices of James and the other apostles there. And the challenge of maintaining control over um, those people who are claiming to act as authorized teachers and yet actually are not. Um, mm. It seems to me that the wording of that particular expression, of that particular part is very similar to what we find in the first epistle of John where it talks about people who have gone out from mm-hmm. us but were not other of us and there I don't think it's just people who've apostatized it's people who claim to be apostolic teachers but are not in fact and so this challenge of false apostles of false messengers seems to be witnessed in a number of parts of the New Testament not just in um places like second Corinthians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it, that that adds a, a complication to something that we brought up, uh, I believe a couple of times previously in our studies uh, where uh, there, there several times where things that seem to outrun the uh, leaders in Jerusalem. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of Acts chapter eight, where Philip goes out to Samaria and preaches the people respond and their uh, Philip baptizes them, but they don't receive the Spirit. So there's something already happening out there that the Philip had been approved by the apostles in Jerusalem, but he was going out on a mission that was part of the dispersion of of uh, disciples after the martyrdom of Stephen. So there you have uh, the the Spirit is directing Philip. The Spirit is moving uh, Philip here and there, and then the apostles kind of catch up and give a particular authorization, and the Spirit comes on the Samaritans when the when the uh, Jerusalem leaders arrive, so there's there's this complication of the the spirit being the director of the mission, and yet as you point out, there's a there's a kind of authorization that has to accompany that from those who have authority in Jerusalem, and then Antioch becomes a base of operation. The the believers send out Paul and Barnabas from Antioch, so there there are other centers eventually, but there does seem to be a requirement that the those two things are working in tandem. It's not just the spirit working apart from any kind of human authorization or human control. Yeah. Just picking up on some of those um, things, Peter, it strikes me as significant that so far in the book of Acts, there's been this stress on communal witness and conversation and, and agreement and on the development of a consensus. You know, so in, for instance, Cornelius's conversion, there was this vision that went both to Paul, uh, Peter and Cornelius and they sort of had one part of it each and then afterwards Peter reported to the church and they agreed and sort of here in uh, chapter 15 th- there is this similar 
thing in verse 25, the, the people, are, the elders are of one accord, uh, and so they write, and then in verse 27 it says that they send Judas and Silas, and it says they will tell you the same things written in our letter by word. Um, you know, then in verse 30 they deliver the letter, they, they gather the congregation and read it communally, um, all of which is quite countercultural these days actually, but um, there, there is that sense of communal, communal witness and consensus um mm. but at the same time then there is the first um sense of disagreement isn't there so there are these people who alice have mentioned um who go out unauthorized it, it seems and then straight afterwards in chapter in verse 36 onwards there is this disagreement um between paul and, and barnabas and so there is um i guess yeah there is that first uh sense of i don't know if it's disintegration but um uh, there's the rise of disagreement within that witness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think at the very least, this is a, an indication. Uh, what well, well, lesson we can learn from it, I, whether it's a deliberate indication or not. Um, we, we romanticize the early church. We we can romanticize the early centuries of the church as if it were peaceful, calm, and not a ripple in the surface of the the church's unity. And it's clear that that's not the case. At chapter 15, you have uh, the eruption of the dispute over circumcision. At the beginning, you have the Paul and Barnabas at the end. And then, as you say, in the middle of <laughs> in the middle of all that, we find that there are some unauthorized teachers going out. That, 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 uh, one of the things that reminds me of is the uh, condemnation of the false prophets in Jeremiah, where he says, uh, uh, talks about prophets who are proclaiming the word of God, but have not stood in the counsel of the Lord. If they had stood in the council of the Lord, then they wouldn't be saying what they're saying. But they haven't. They haven't received the words that they're that they're delivering. Here, it's uh, that whatever words they're delivering are being delivered to them by other human beings. It's not uh, not that these, or that's 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 the way it, it should work. That they're being instructed by those in Jerusalem before they're sent out, and they're being authorized by those who are sent out. But it has a similar kind of structure to it. There's a similar kind of uh, a problem that you had with the false prophets. Hmm. To what extent do you think these things are models to be taken forward in churches and in church governance and and so forth? There seems to be a big emphasis here in um, uh, matters of disagreement on on gathering together and publicly reading and hearing and uh, and public discussion and, and so forth. Um, do you, do you see that as like an ongoing um, uh, model for churches? There certainly seems to be in the ministry of Paul and others a concern to develop a church that is not merely local churches, but which is operating at this more cosmopolitan, um, regional and then international level. And often I think when we talk about the church, we have this idea of the church as this grand universal entity, but also local churches and don't maybe give enough attention to the importance of that intermediate stage where there is um there are these established connections between churches this movement between this coordination of teaching and ensure ensuring that everyone is on the same page in apostolic um authority and teaching that things are being communicated from congregation to congregation that people are in fellowship with each other and that there is a common witness being born 
and and also this sharing of encouragement from different locations that as you hear what god is doing in one part of the empire it can be a source of encouragement and building up elsewhere that work i think is so integral to what paul and his fellow missionaries are are doing that it seems that a meeting like this at jerusalem is quite integral to the larger task of forming the church um, you can't just have local churches that are doing their own thing and plowing their own their own furrows. You really do need some way to bring people together. Yeah, I, I agree with that, I, and I think that your point, Alistair, about the uh, the kind of middle range connectivity is is really important. And I think that historically you see signs of this at different ages of church history. Um, you have, you know, we we all know about the big councils. Uh, of the early church, but there were multiple uh, smaller, more regional councils. The same thing happens during the medieval period that are addressing sometimes issues that are concerned for the whole church, but sometimes issues that are specific to those regions. You have this, this uh, goes on the Reformation in a certain sense uh, as uh, each, uh, each city has its own not each city, but many different cities produce their own kind of confessions of faith or in cooperation with each other, but there's still this regional emphasis. And I think that, yeah, that's a, that's a crucial dimension of authority that's often, uh, that's often forgotten. So what, what do you think is, um, we, we've talked a little bit about Paul and Barnabas's, um, their uh, dispute, and we know what it's about on the surface. It's a dispute about John, um, John Mark and whether he should accompany them on their mission. Barnabas wants him to come along. Paul doesn't. And Paul objects because John Mark had been with them on a previous journey and had deserted them. It's a pretty strong term. Uh, it's the verb form of apostatize, apostasy that uh, Luke uses there. So it, it seems like not just uh, he physically left them, but he somehow uh, gave up on the work that they were doing. Not that, he, not that he was no longer a believer, but that he gave up on the mission. So I mean we know what we know what the dispute is about and what happened, but um, how do you think that fits into the uh, anything more than we can say about how that fits into the larger the larger plot of acts? We've already mentioned that this is an indication of the kind of realism about the the way the church is the way the church is growing. But is there are there any other dimensions to it that you noticed? One thing that occurred to me is that. Quite a few episodes in Acts seem to end in a slightly anticlimactic way. So at the end of the whole issue with the um, Gentiles' conversion and, and the food laws and table fellowship and so forth, um, at the end of that, um, there's the proclamation of a, of a famine. Um, then at the end of chapter 12, after Peter is released, he just sort of drifts away. I mean, the chapter ends, it says something like, you know, then he departed and went to another place. And then you don't hear much um, more about him. And this strikes me as another of those slightly anticlimactic endings. There is this potential rift in the church and it is um, sewn up and people are of one accord at the council. And then immediately afterwards, there's this disagreement. And um, uh, yeah, to me, it, it does underline that same realism that you're talking about, um, uh, Peter. There, there were these constant issues mixed uh, amongst the incredible success that these men had mm -hmm. it reminds me of the uh, the lesson that uh, jim jordan drew from the sequence of events in exodus 
following the exodus itself, Israel passes through the sea. They sing the song of victory over uh, Yahweh's triumph over Pharaoh and his armies. And then they go out into the wilderness and uh, they're hungry. They begin to grumble. The Amalekites start nipping at them, taking out some of the stragglers. And so you have this enormous breakthrough and victory that's immediately followed by these internal threats. Um, and you have that's this, a similar kind of sequence you have here. As you said, the, the Jerusalem Council is a huge, a huge declaration of the unity of the church, not only in the agreement that they come to, but the fact that they're saying now Jews and Gentiles are going to share together in this body. And then you have these uh, signs of dissension breaking out. So, you know, always, always on your guard when you're, uh, when you have something really good happen, because uh, something bad is bound to happen shortly after. Reading the story of Acts and thinking about the life of uh, Paul and others, it's very easy to focus just upon the highlights that are recorded for us that can often be condensed into a very short period of time. So if you're reading the story of Abraham, for instance, so many of the big events occur within a period of a couple of years um, from chapter 17 onwards. But yet large spans of his life, nothing significant is happening and it seems very discouraging. Um, and you find that, I think, for most of the characters in Scripture. It's very easy to think about, for instance, the great deliverance of the plagues and the events at the Red Sea and forget that Moses has been hanging around as a shepherd in the wilderness for 40 years. And when we're mm -hmm. reading the story of Paul, it can e be easy to forget just how many dry spells he might have had in his life, how many periods of discouragement where people seem to be forsaking him when he's in prison or um, he's dealing with these big problems in churches where he's going to the Gentiles and starting this mission and then it seems he's betrayed by the source where people claiming to be from Jerusalem and James come out and bring this message that's contrary to everything that he's been saying. And so it's very important, I think, to feel the force of these discouragements and to see the way it's recorded in Scripture as a message of victory, but yet to realize that it might not have felt like that at the time. And in the broader span mm. of history, as we look back upon what God achieved, it was clearly a victory, but yet many moments would have felt deeply anticlimactic and depressing for people. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point, Alistair. I think that um, one, of the, one of the effects of the uh, dispute with Barnabas, uh, and this, is, this would be the Lord bringing uh, a, uh, a good thing out of a, out of a, painful, uh, out of a painful argument and painful breach. Uh, but Paul ends up teaming with Silas, and Silas is going to accompany him on this next journey as they go and visit the churches. And the effect of that is to bring a representative of the Jerusalem church into this mission. You've just had the, the council that has decided uh, what to do about the Gentiles. Uh, and now you have uh, a prominent man from the Jerusalem church who is uh, going to be accompanying the mission to the Gentiles. So the, the mission itself has this kind of Antioch-Jerusalem combination. I think Timothy plays a similar role, being part Jewish, part Greek, he kind of embodies the character of the church. And so in the, in the providence of God, these, the uh, uh, shifting of the personnel on Paul's second missionary journey is actually 
in some ways strengthening, it kind of incarnates uh, the the message of the council and the message that Paul's bringing to these churches and in, into these new areas. Mm. Silas is described as a prophet, and in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, we're told that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which seems to me to be not primarily a reference to the Old Testament prophets, but to New Testament prophets like Silas, Agabus, Judas, other characters like that. And I wonder what role we, how would these prophets be operating? What would they be doing that would make them foundational for the life of the church? I mean, I'm tempted to see the term apostles and prophets, um, at least in Ephesians 2, uh, towards the end of there, as reference to one type of people, um, almost apostolic prophets or, or, or something like that. And so uh, I would I would associate them with the, the laying down of the apostolic teaching, so the um, the witness to the resurrection, the, the teaching of Christian uh, doctrine and dissemination of, of Jesus' teaching and, and that sort of um, foundational stuff. And there's um, there are some sort of grammatical arguments you can give for, for seeing them as one group of people as well. Yeah, I think we, we do have some examples of uh, people who are specifically called prophets and acting in, in what we normally think of as prophetic ways in the book of Acts. Think of Agabus, for example, and there are others who who deliver prophecies. Uh, and there, and it seems to me that you could you could make an argument for Paul uh, having a kind of prophetic experience here in at the beginning of chapter sixteen, as as the uh, story goes on from the Jerusalem Council. Paul tries to begin a second journey. It gets stalled because he has this breakup with Barnabas. He finds another partner, so he and Silas are going to go out. But then that gets stalled. Uh, they uh, want to go through Asia, but the Holy Spirit forbids them, verse 6. Uh, they come to Mysia. They're trying to go through Bithynia. The Spirit of God would not permit them to go. And so they end up in Troas. Uh, so you have um, the Spirit is directing Paul as they go, but he's directing by blocking, somehow blocking their progress in the direction they want to go. But then the opening to Macedonia occurs because of a vision. So you think back to, to Acts 2. Uh, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. A spirit is poured out as a spirit of prophecy. Uh, and uh, Paul's mission is being directed, at least at this point, by a vision that he receives of this Macedonian man calling him. So that would, I think that, that would be one of the functions of the prophet. Here it's an apostle who's uh, having that prophetic role, but I, that would be one of the, uh, that would be one of the ways prophets would function, I would think, that they would be, the Lord would be giving them visions, dreams, you know, visions like Cornelius and Peter both got that would be directing them to pursue certain kinds of open doors of mission. I imagine also before the deposit of the apostolic teaching was um, fully given, that it would be very important to have people who had revelation from God concerning the truth of the gospel and how to read the Old Testament and apply it in a um, contemporary context. Mm -hmm. And after the deposit of scripture, that would be less um, prominent a need. But for the earlier years of the church, the people who had those teaching gifts and were inspired in that respect would be of a special importance. Mm -hmm. The description of the Spirit's instruction and direction of the mission reminds me more than anything else of the way that um, 
people like David would consult the Lord concerning military manoeuvres. It is like this campaign that's going through mm -hmm. the region of Asia Minor and elsewhere and being directed um, to particular locations. Do I go up against the Philistines or not? And how do I go against them? And those sorts of instructions that we find in places like Second Samuel are very similar to what we're finding here on a missionary journey. Yeah, that's that's a great analogy. The, the analogy I thought of was uh, the travels of Abraham through the land. He gets to the land and he goes here and there establishing altars in different locations. And you have this kind of travelogue through the uh, you know, sections of Acts that are just um, indications of journeys from one place to the next. It's uh, somewhat like an, you know, some, some ancient documents that do record that do record travel, but it's also like Abraham going around claiming the land that he's going to inherit. But I, I like the I like the military analogy too. That's that uh, that fits very nicely with what's going on here. Hmm. I wondered in part how we're meant to understand references to the Spirit's guidance in these chapters more generally. I mean, uh, if we go back to verse 28 of chapter um, 15, when the um, decision is, is communicated, you know, it, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden and, and then sort of they give their verdict. You know, what is that saying exactly? Is that saying that, they discussed things and came to conclusion, and there was this um, extra revelation that was given by the Holy Spirit in some way, or is it that they took the consensus there as a signal that the Holy Spirit was saying to them, this is what you should do? I'm, um, I'm kind of intrigued to think about, we looked initially at decision-making and how it's uh, the uh, drawing lots um, in Acts 1, um, when Stephen is appointed, um, the people are told to pick him, aren't they? You know, pick out from among you seven men of good good repute, full of the spirit. And it seems the congregation there or the gathered church plays more of a, a role in, in being the spirit-anointed um, choosers there. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm asking the same questions here. You know, there in verse 6, now of chapter 16, they're forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak. Um, the Spirit of Jesus doesn't allow them in verse 7. You know, uh, what, what do you make of these things? Is it an interpretation of events which are taking place? Do you think it's a revelation by a prophet which they recognize as um, uh, as the Spirit speaking to them? Yeah, I can imagine it taking a, a number of different forms. I, I, we have to. It is. It's a question we have to speculate on to some degree. Again, I think of Agabus, who speaks to Paul and gives him a specific prophecy of what's going to happen when he goes to Jerusalem. It doesn't prevent Paul from going, but it does come true. It's exactly what what happens to him. Uh, so it could be a uh, somebody who's moved by the Spirit to give uh, to give a message to Paul. Yeah, I, I think it uh, it could be uh, circumstances conspire to keep them from doing certain things that they had planned to do, and they conclude that the spirit is uh, is a is a an, an obstacle and prohibiting them. The wording of verse verse six seems to be more direct than that, though. The Holy Spirit forbids them to speak the word in Asia, so that sounds like it's uh, some kind of message that the spirit brings not just a an inference from circumstance it sounds it, it seems like that's a prohibition 
so in that case, I would my guess would be that somebody inspired by the Spirit is is speaking to them, or um, you know, Paul's going to see a dream come to Macedonia. Maybe he also receives a vision or dream that uh, tells him not to go certain places. The description of Timothy is interesting. The fact that he's spoken of as being that Paul takes him and circumcises him. Um, I mean, he doesn't just instruct Timothy to be circumcised, but it seems that he's involved in a, a stronger way there. And elsewhere in the New Testament, it's very clear that Timothy is a sort of son figure relative to um, Paul. He's one who doesn't just accompany him as a um, missionary companion, as with Silas or Barnabas, but he is someone who represents Paul's own authority. He's his son in um, his mission. And so when he sends Timothy to a particular place, he comes as a sort of a plenipotentiary emissary of Paul himself. And so I wonder whether the description of Timothy's circumcision here is in part an indication of Paul as his father figure, um, that Paul, like a father, would circumcise his son, is having Timothy circumcised so that he can represent Paul more effectively. We've spoken about the way in which Paul um, sort of unwinds or puts right various of the failures of, of Saul um, in the Old Testament. And throughout Samuel, there seem to be these fairly unsuccessful, um, I don't know if you'd call them adoptions, but, you know, people taking on a, a son-like figure, Samuel taking Saul, um, but Saul going his own way, and Samuel sort of, uh, Saul then unsuccessfully sort of being a father to to David. Um, and this, I guess, would be a successful um, version and fulfilment of those, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I'm struck, I guess, just for Paul's um, concern for the churches. He has a, um, a clear focus on what he wants to achieve. But at the end of lots of these, um, oh, not lots of, but some of these um, paragraphs, we, we have that he's strengthening the churches. So in verse 41 at the end of chapter um, 5, he, he goes through strengthening the churches and and the same he said um chapter 16 verse 5 and i i think elsewhere he, he's going back and he, he has a great concern for the people who he's encountered and who he's preached the gospel to it, it feels like he um has this sense of, of debt to them and responsibility that he needs to um go back and uh, encourage them and communicate various things to them and um I, I am I guess I'm just sort of struck by his his heart and his concern um for the people. These conversions are not sort of um strings to his bow that he notches up and then moves on to bigger and, and better things. Um he wants to invest personally in individuals and I just think that's a, an important thing to um take on board the, the investment in in people rather than in just trying to amass achievements or accomplishments which we can probably all be guilty of at various times in our christian walks and, and lives thank you again for enjoying this episode of the theopolis podcast for more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. 
If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.